Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shobhana Xavier, and thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you are safe and well wherever you are. Today, we are joined by Tawhida Tanya Evanson, who's a celebrated Antiguan-Canadian poet, spoken word artist, Samazan, or whirling dervish, performer and storyteller, to talk about her debut book, Book of Wings, by Vehicle Press. The novel follows the journey of the protagonist, Maya, across vast geographies, such as Canada, the United States, the Caribbean, France, and Morocco, as she reels from a devastating relationship with her lover and partner, Shams. In this modern Sufi love story, Maya, a biracial black woman, seeks Shams, her lost beloved, and this quest propels her on a spiritual journey that unfolds in a physical return to her homeland in North Africa, a return that is symbolically representative of the inner return to one's spiritual origins, so modeled by the Sufis. Evanson also draws from various Afro-Caribbean diaspora traditions of spirituality and music and storytelling in her novel. These intricate Sufi, Islamic, Afro-Caribbean diaspora traditions appear through personalities that Maya, the protagonist, encounters on her travels, namely figures such as Muhammad, Hassan, Hussein, Fatma, and Hajar, or saints, dervishes, ancestors, masters, and holy ones. The novel is textured with Sufi themes, symbols, and teachings, be they states of beauty and love or the summation to annihilate the ego. These appear not only in the storyline, but also in the prose, such as the use of repetition, a quintessential Sufi pedagogy. This exquisite and compelling novel would be a welcome text to incorporate into numerous courses that deal with a wide range of topics, such as the hero's quest and mystical journey, or topical courses such as on Sufism, Islam, gender, sexuality, or Afro-Caribbean diaspora, Canadian literature, and much more. 
In our conversation today, we spoke about the process that led to the writing of Evanson's first novel, her practice of the tradition of whirling or turning, some key Sufi texts that inspired her in the writing of this book, and some of the themes of Sufism and Afro-diasporic traditions that emerge in the novel, as well as um, ideas around gender and sexuality. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Tawhida Tanya Evanson about her brand new book, Book of Wings. Hi, Tawhida. Thank you so much for joining us on the show to talk about your new novel, A Book of Wings. How are you doing? Um, very well, alhamdulillah. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, we have a tradition in the podcast to start off with learning a little bit about our guests. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, who you are, uh, some of your past works, especially your poetry, and what led to writing this particular novel. Um, well, uh, I am an Antiguan Quebecoise poet, um, author, novelist, and artist from Jojage, Montreal in Quebec. Uh, I've published um, six artist books or chat books, um, and I've had two poetry collections published, uh, Bothism in 2017 and Nouveau Griot in 2018. Uh, my first novel, Book of Wings, was published um, just this month, February 2021, with Vehicle Press. And I also um, have work, or I have consistently published uh, work in literary journals and have been featured in anthologies as well. Um, the, my primary practice for the last 25 years has been in spoken word poetry, and I've performed um, extensively at uh, literary and arts festivals um, internationally in over a dozen countries. I've also released four studio albums of poetry and music. Uh, as well as six video poems. Um, I've received um, some awards within the spoken word genre. Um, and I also am the program director of the Banff Center Spoken Word Residency. Um, uh, let's see, I'm also on the board of directors for the Quebec Writers Federation, and I also produce inter-arts events. And um, uh, I, I also often tell folks that I moonlight as a whirling dervish which is a subtle way of mentioning that <laughs> Sufi practice permeates um, the work that I do. No, I'm listening. Uh, there was a second question there, which was what led you to write the book or? Yeah, what what was the inspiration or what led to, especially kind of changing the medium from kind of other artistic practices that you have to shifting to the novel? Um, well, the book was, uh, the book is based on lived experiences um, experiences from uh, about 20 years ago in 2002. And the book is um, a sort of mythologization of those experiences. Um, the book was worked on sporadically um, over the last 20 years. And it was only in 2020 um, when um, by some magic, <laughs> I received a, a, a book deal with Vehicle Press to, to go uh, to really expand and develop all of the ideas that were in the book. And so about 40% of the book was written uh, in 2020. Um, because the bones had already been there, it was already written as a, a piece of prose. Um, and so I just continued in that tradition and worked with an editor to help develop some of um, some aspects of fiction that were not fully there in my work, which uh, which, as uh, as uh, mentioned, is mostly in poetry and spoken word. 
Um, what would you say the story of the Book of Wings is? How would you describe it if you had to explain it to somebody who hasn't read it? <laughs> um, well, in, yeah. in a simplified form, I would say that it's a Sufi love. It's a Sufi love story across three continents. <laughs> um, there are three main characters. The main character Maya, who is based on a younger version of myself, um, and her her partner Shams, and also another character Mathieu, whom she meets later on. Uh, Maya and Shams are uh, decide to travel together, you know, in the uh, backpacking form of wandering. And so they travel through the United States, uh, through Mexico, um, some parts of the Caribbean, and they end up in Paris when Shams leaves her, or perhaps she leaves him. That part mm. is uh, somewhat unknown. Uh, but the the main issue is that uh, Maya is in love with this person, Shams, who disappears. And uh, she doesn't really know what to do. She doesn't want to return home with her tail between her legs saying, he left me. <laughs> so she leans in to the travel and continues on through France and goes to the uh, to Morocco, decides to go to Africa, where she has uh, many meetings with quite remarkable human beings who each have lessons to offer her. Uh, and so that she, in the end, can have a new understanding of love. There's just so many rich um, aspects of this book. And I'm really excited to kind of get into some of the details of it. And I think I'm really particularly excited to talk to you about the Sufi themes. Um, and I think um, Sufi themes come up in so many ways. I mean, the book starts with, um, you know, poetry from from Rumi um, you have a the figure of Shams and I wonder if this is uh, alluding to Shams of Rumi or if this is like a parallel or adjacent in any way and you know how the idea of travel is important as another Sufi theme um, so I wonder if we could start with those and then we could go to some of the other Sufi themes that are popping up of course uh, definitely the story of um, Mevlana and Shams is at the center of this book um, in the end, uh, Maya is an iteration of Mevlana, Istafrullah, and uh, Shams, the character, is really a symbol of Shamsi Tabrizi. So Maya has an experience where she is in, she um, has met this person, and Shams in the book as well is a dervish. And then the dervish leaves her, and she has this, these uh, deep feelings of being in love yet the object of her love disappears. Um, and uh, the, the travels, the encounters with uh, people in Morocco um, are what allow her to kind of understand what it means to be in this kind of ocean of love <laughs> and what it means to love perhaps without object. Uh, mm -hmm. In the end, um, this book is a kind of origin story where uh, because Maya represents an early version of me, um, at the end of the book, the character returns to Canada and I also returned to Canada and four months later was initiated in a Sufi order and also became Samazen. So four months after this, um, the experiences that are described in the book. 
So it's what led to the characters uh, becoming a student of Tasawwuf in the end, through living the story of Mevlana and Shams uh, and the disappearance, mm-hmm. the, the being in love and experiencing the disappearance of Shams. And the other aspect that you mentioned also, the journey, mm-hmm. uh, which is, which is, it's a hajj. Uh, perhaps the character doesn't realize that uh, they are going on a pilgrimage or a hajj, but this is what is happening. Um, and that's definitely a big aspect of the story. Uh, almost the, the, hero's, the hero's journey, which is a very old kind of um, concept in literature uh, of the, the, the hero who um, uh, sets out on a journey and meets uh, people who uh, allow, who, who allow that uh, character to become transformed, hopefully to become a, a more beautiful human being through some uh, events that polish. So those are the two main, I would say. Um, there's also another one, though, which is meetings with the um, al-al-bayt. The, it's, it's interesting because there's a, an Arabic way of saying it and a Turkish way of saying it. And because my murshid is, my, my, my teacher is Turkish, I often think in Turkish terms, I would say the ehli bayt. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. if you if you don't mind, I'll say that because it feels more familiar. Yeah, of course. So the character of Maya, in fact, uh, embarks on this journey and has uh, generally two meetings. Everyone is met twice. Um, she meets the family of Prophet Muhammad. Uh, she meets Ali twice. She meets Muhammad actually many times. Uh, she meets Hassan. She meets Hussein. She's told that she is akin to Fatima and she's told the story of Fatima. So that's another aspect of the book too that is very important is meetings with the Ahli Bayt. And I wonder if we could talk about kind of um, what I was really like um, drawn in by was the subtlety, but also the repetitive aspect of some of, you know, as you're saying, the encounters twice, but also kind of repetition that happens. And how much of this is is something that you're drawing from Sufi practices, especially kind of like really the deep subtlety of it. I think in the, in the chapter on um, Shams, the bird, where um, I think you go with Shams in Vancouver to this Quaker house and you you know, have the first encounter of a Sufi ritual. There's just something very subtle about it. You know, it's not mm-hmm. kind of, um, um, it's, it's almost like you could miss it because you kind of mentioned in passing going along. And so much of the book kind of represents that, that experience of subtlety and the experience of repetition. And I wonder if these are things that you're also drawing from kind of a Sufi practice, a Sufi tradition. Um, does that make sense? It definitely is. It absolutely does. And there's a quality of um, prediction and this notion that the future is at the periphery of your Mm -hmm. vision. So if something happens and you miss it, well, it's probably going to happen again. But if you miss it the first time, you'll miss it the second time. So that's why everything happens twice in the book. In fact, it's, it's for the benefit of the main character, Maya, so that she if she misses it the first time, perhaps she might catch it the second time. Right. Um, and that is, and that one example of that is through the names, mm-hmm. you know, meeting Muhammad more than once, meeting Ali, meeting Hassan, meeting Hussein, this, this kind of notion is meeting them more than once is, hmm, perhaps there is meaning not only in the meetings, but in, in, in the names and what these meetings represent. Mm-hmm. 
So that's definitely one one notion. I'm not sure if this is specifically from a Tasawuf tradition um, outside of perhaps just uh, how dreams can be predictions as well, which is why dreams are also important in the book. But it's also just um, a notion, in fact, that I heard from a beat writer, uh, William Burroughs, who had um, who had, was quoting, I think, Joseph Conrad and this notion of the future being on the periphery of our vision. And so that notion is what is also expanded uh, in the book, this idea of um, reliving things, not reliving things, but encountering things twice so that you must pay attention. There's no way to look away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even the, the the titles of the the sections or the chapters, um, uh, their their themes in there were you know they're subtitled like uh, cooked or seclusion, um, work of destruction. So as I was reading it, I'm almost was wondering if these are itself stages or states that one would experience in kind of the journey of the Sufi or the initiatory practice, right? Um, if this was the inspiration for kind of the way that the book is structured itself and kind of the that the titles of it? It is, absolutely. Um, also, what was what I was trying to do was not, um, was keep everything almost um, as an open secret so that um, aspects of tasawuf or Sufism would be revealed, but not the aspects that in fact one must experience. Like in any practice, in any spiritual practice, it's about the experience of it, right? We could talk about um, zikish, but there's no point. One must do it. Uh, So that once one begins to do that practice, eventually, we hope, inshallah, it does you. And we could say the same of for perhaps a yoga practice, right? You do it until it starts to do you. And then you're always, you're never outside of it. So those, um, the, the headings and a lot of the subtleties in the book were there to offer hints or echoes of something without revealing the esoteric um, qualities of a a Sufi practice, which in fact is that it is a secret. These are secret practices. They are, you know, when we think of what is the mystical, well, it's something that is unknown unless you participate. Mm -hmm. And so this allows you to be on the edge you know, to perhaps peer into a room where the door is just ajar. It's not wide open. That requires more work, <laughs> more more walking. But the door is ajar, so you can peek in and get a, a echoes or hints of what it is to, to be a student of Tasawwur. Um, uh, were there books or Sufi books or maybe other figures you've alluded to in terms of some characters in, in, in your novel that you went back to or were reading as you were writing this book um, over the years? Definitely. There is one book that when I read it in 2001, before this all this journey began, I didn't understand it. Uh, and then when I read it afterwards... I never recovered from reading it, and I still continue to read it, and um, it's still my favorite book of all time, and that's just The Essential Rumi. Uh, It's a Coleman Barks translation, um, and that's the one that has affected me um, uh, the the most deeply, 
but I did not understand it until I'd had this experience of falling in love and with a dervish, <laughs> in fact, a whirling dervish, mm-hmm. who then left me. And then yeah. I, or this uh, early version of myself in the book, was then allowed to become a whirling dervish as well, which is exactly the story of Mevlana and, and Shams. So um, that book, The Essential Rumi, um, there's a quote in the Book of Wings from the Mathnawi, from Book 3, and that is also one of the, I think, uh, most beautiful quotes of the importance of um, to die before you die, this kind of concept. Um, there's also a quote from um, Bahaudin Walad, uh, Mevlana's father, from the Drowned Book. So this is also a book that, uh, that I keep nearby uh, because just as Shams was Mevlana's teacher, so was um, Mevlana's father, his teacher as well. And so I wanted to keep all of those close. Uh, there's also a quote from um, Hazrat Ahmed al-Rifai, uh, but not from a book. It's just a quote from an experience that, um, uh, that was reported. So these are kind of the, the, the peers the teachers in the world of Tasawuf that are closest, feel the, the closest uh, to me, and that helped to guide what this book could be in a way that was sharing something without, like I said, without giving everything away, but giving um, a hint, a, a taste, uh, a grape from the feast <laughs> uh, of, of what Tasawuf is or, or where, it can, where it can go. So those are some of the kind of the books that are in it. But as I mentioned before, mainly all the stories of the Ahli Bayt are all told in parables where characters with the same name share those uh, share aspects of their life with the main character, just to give a taste. For example, she meets someone named Muhammad who says, I was born in the year of the elephant. And for those who are familiar with Muhammad, then they will know. But if you're not familiar, then you just have this wonderful story. Who is this person who was born in the year of the elephant? Wow. So the book was designed for everyone to receive something from it, regardless of whether you're familiar with Islam or Tasawwuf or not. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, I wonder if we also can talk about some of the other overlapping themes or prominent um, themes that are in, in the book or that you draw upon. And one is really um, Afro-diasporic um, uh, 
themes and symbols. And I find that the ways in which they are mm-hmm. so um, intimately woven with Sufi themes are quite beautiful, especially the idea of the journey, um, um, you know, traveling on boat and all the significance it has in terms of thinking about um, the Black Atlantic and where you're positioned geographically and where you're traveling to post kind of this um, this broken mm-hmm. heart. So can can you talk us through um, some of the themes that you're drawing from in terms of what we might think of Afro-diasporic um, themes and what significance they play and how they relate to Sufism or or if you see them as separate or actually deeply intertwined? They are deeply intertwined and that's uh, evidenced in the fact that um, perhaps a quarter of Africans who were enslaved and brought to the Americas were Muslim or Sufis, as um, most um, uh, most folks in West Africa will call themselves Sufis as opposed to Muslim. And uh, mm-hmm. so because uh, my ancestry, which is also the ancestry of the character in the book, is Antiguan in the Caribbean, um, there is no evidence in Antigua of Islam or Sufism. But there when I was reading some history about Antigua, there's a wonderful book that I picked up at the, um, at the, uh, at a bookstore in Antigua and it's called Africans to Antiguans, the slavery experience. And it's kind of an index of, um, of what that transformation entailed. How did Africans become Antiguans? And one line stayed with me. Uh, And it's, that in the 1740s, there's a a quote here, I'm quoting from the book, to lighten their work, slaves improvised merry work songs. One was a chorus called La Allah La La. And when I saw that, I said, oh, that's what it is. That's the connection. (laughs) That's perhaps what what led this one to become this one (laughs) uh, that is writing this book. Uh, And that, that, it's the tahlin, it's the the transformation of Layla uh, Haylala that that had its transformation across the Middle Passage, right, crossing the Atlantic, and became La Allah La La as a work song in Antigua. And so that, for me, is a very specific um, point of reference that I wanted to bring into the book to show that there is a thread, and that the thread of coming from West Africa, going to the Caribbean coming up to um, to uh, Canada, and then going back to Africa as well, that it's one thread and it's one tahlil. Um, so this is one uh, definitely important aspect, the Middle Passage, and also this uh, understanding of this particular um, prayer. Uh, I will say prayer in a very generalized way. It's uh, yeah. much, much more than that. Um, so th- that's, that's one important aspect. The other one I would say is just... Um, the, you know, the diasporic return, the character doesn't fully realize that she is, wow, this is really a diasporic return and what it means to set foot on the African continent and to arrive there by boat, by choice, which is what the character does. Um, So it's there, but it's not fully known, which is why there are always some uh, voices in in the book saying, uh, giving perhaps giving a, um, a detail about something, and it's just a voice from the other side of the story, which is perhaps the future, telling this person in the past, um, giving them an idea of what the meaning is, but they don't necessarily know that the main character doesn't fully understand what's happening. 
so so the diasporic return is definitely important. And also the character walks around and sees folks who look like family, which is another aspect. Uh, even encountering Hey Josh, um, you know, the, the mother of us all, uh, who is a character in the book who is Egyptian, just as Hajar was Egyptian. And, you know, the mother of all Abrahamic religions, never spoken of, <laughs> but who is uh, who is the one who gave us Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So this aspect is also there. Um, some other aspects as well, the Gnawa and the Sufi Gnawa, uh, the ceremony and the heritage of the Gnawa. Uh, so that revelation is also really important uh, because the Gnawa were also enslaved from um, African countries south of Morocco, and they were brought up to Morocco and combined their animism with Islam uh, to become uh, Gnawa, which is uh, in the Sufi tradition. So these are some of the main ones. There are also some a- other aspects connected to jazz. Uh, Charlie Parker is mentioned, Nina Simone, Amiri Baraka, uh, before he, he became Amiri Baraka, uh, was a black beat poet. He was Leroy Jones. So he also converted to Islam, and he is mentioned in the book as well as kind of, um, these are uh, fam- uh, figures of inspiration and uh, admiration. And it's it's so fascinating because then there's really the journey of return and the diasporic aspect is both kind of the Afro-diasporic context, but also the Sufi context of like the metaphysical return, Right. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's so, so beautiful that you really have to pay attention to the journey that's happening on multiple spheres simultaneously. Um, and I think that that's so, um, it's such a reality that's evoked in a lot of Sufi traditions um, that I've at least explored and to see it in the novel in this way, um, I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. I'm so glad that was transmitted uh, again, because it's, it's for uh, any, it's, it's not for a specific audience. It's for the human being. In, in the end, every book is about the human being and the human condition. And so it has, it has to, if it can't speak to the human being, then, then I need to work harder. <laughs> so I'm glad that, that things were transmitted um, to you and that I also hear that certain things are transmitted to others as well. And everyone is receiving something different which is really wonderful. It says that there's some richness, there's some wealth that can affect everyone, hopefully in a positive way and be of service. Yeah, absolutely. There's just so many layers. Um, Another aspect that I wanted to really talk to you about is um, uh, gender and sexuality. Um, I mean, Maya, who's named later in the, in the, in the story um, is a, a, a woman who is racialized, who's traveling alone, right? Um, so there's that kind of component um, with very kind of practical logistical component in terms of navigating uh, spaces and safety. Um, there's also the component of sexuality in terms of how she is um, uh, uh, navigating her own identity, her relationships and her own body. Um, and I just felt that there was such a vulnerability in this this aspect that in light of the Sufi themes and in light of the Afro-diasporic um, themes that we've just talked about, the gender and sexuality component was also so important. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that process for you um, and what that meant and if it was something that was like scary to do or something that just you just felt that needed to be part of the story. 
Well, because the book is based on lived experiences and, and kind of a mythologization of those experiences in order to, to see the lesson that they had to offer, uh, it, many of the experiences did occur. Uh, but the question is, what, what was the meaning of them? Uh, there are some experiences that are that occurred that are not in the book because they didn't seem to carry um, a lesson in them, and that was part of the editorial process. But I I think this is a uh, an honest uh, I'd like to think you shall uh, an honest representation of what it is to be a woman walking alone, traveling alone on any street in any city in in the world. <laughs> um, yeah. But when you bring in a racialized element there's a change. So this is a woman who is, um, you know, a, a biracial black woman, uh, but she's in a place where uh, everyone pretty much has the same skin tone as her. <laughs> and so there's this yeah. immediate feeling of family. And a lot of the people there did treat um, the character, uh, treat the character as family, uh, not all of them. And I think it was important to show uh, tender experiences as well as um, abusive experiences, because that is the truth. <laughs> this is what happens. But there's each one has a lesson in it. And that point, the, that is more important uh, than anything is what the main character learns from these, uh, from either tender or abusive experiences as a racialized woman traveling, meeting mostly men <laughs> who, uh, you know, at the time, perhaps things have changed in Morocco, but in 2002, this was the situation on the streets. You saw mostly men. Uh, women were, were, were quite hidden. Um, so it was very rare to have uh, in-depth interactions with them. The interactions were mostly with men. And so that was the feeling was, is this a brother? Is this an uncle? Is this a grandfather? Um, is this a potential lover? Uh, so it's about navigating which one is which and letting them hopefully reveal themselves to the main character as opposed to the main character saying you are this and you are that it's well what is this person and uh so these are kind of some of the elements um uh that have uh, that emerged in the book as as far as gender is concerned i know there's aspects of sexuality too and um uh some slight moments of erotica but uh hopefully they are also poetic in their descriptions and uh, so implicit rather than explicit. That was also um, important, especially for a young woman who is in her late 20s, who's traveling and who is um, kind of in a sexual peak, <laughs> uh, but in a way that uh, has great beauty in it, uh, in, in how and how making love can have this great poetic beauty in it. So hopefully that mm -hmm. is transmitted as well. Absolutely. I think um, so much of it is also thinking about this idea of like the modern Rumi and the modern Rumi as, you know, um, a biracial black woman um, and um, that has these identities, be it race or class or gender and all these other identities and maybe even readers are putting into the character, the protagonist. And, and to have that experience, right? And I think it, it's really kind of really transformative to to see all the different complex aspects um, in very raw ways. Um, and I think when you think about it in that way, as this could be a manifestation of the modern Rumi, I think it's really really profound. Um, 
<laughs> There's only one answer when given that kind of compliment. <laughs> Forgive me for accepting well, the compliment. <laughs> oh, I know you should, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, do you think this is, like, I mean, I know we didn't, um, this is taking us in a different direction, but I mean, as someone who is rooted in the practice, as someone who's writing in this genre, and someone who maybe sees Rumi um, popularized the way that Rumi is popularized. Do you think this book is also responding to that in any way, or is that not part of the, the kind of intervention that's being made? Maybe it's not an intervention. I'm not sure what you think. I think that there is a conscious desire to be part of that lineage, which is why the, the book is called Book of Wings in the tradition of books that have, you know, book of in the title, <laughs> right? So, um, like say a hatname, right? Book of Travels. Uh, so there is there is a desire to be placed in that tradition, but in a way that there's also still aspects that are subversive, and hopefully in the way that Mevlana was also subversive. Rumi was subversive in his writing. I mean, I I can recall a few stories of Rumi's that ha that do discuss sexuality in quite surprising and perhaps shocking ways. And I'd like to think that I'm in that uh, continuum as well, in the continuum of, uh, of Meblana writing from those, from various perspectives and writing from uh, the perspective of the one who has uh, loved, who has had an incredible experience with another human uh, and that human disappeared, and that the insanity that ensued became produced something that the world still discusses 800 years later. So uh, because it, there was a feeling that the story, the, the experience that I had of meeting a whirling dervish who was also my teacher and who disappeared, <laughs> and which prompted these travels and for me to also become a whirling dervish is the parallel is so clear that there was, there was always this desire to share this story, but I wasn't always sure how to do it, especially when I was, when it had just been written because not all of the elements were really quite clear at the time, but I would definitely like to think that I'm in that, that tradition or my ego would love to be connected <laughs> to that tradition <laughs> Of, of that type of writing, you know, or, or for example, like um, there's a book called Awakened Dreams by Ahmed Hilmi. And this is a book that uh, recounts a similar story as well of someone who is traveling and having encounters in the dream world uh, with uh, all sorts of uh, uh, people who um, offer lessons. And so uh, that was also kind of on the periphery of my mind is that book, Awakened Dreams, or Isabel Eberhardt's uh, The Oblivion Seekers. Have you heard of this book uh, by Isabel Eberhardt? I haven't. The I Oblivion it down. No, I haven't. It's, I heard uh, of Awakened Dreams. Mm -hmm. There's not many because um, there's, first of all, not necessarily uh, many folks who could be defined as a as a student of Tasawuf or Dervish who are writing fiction or writing perhaps mm -hmm. a travel log or memoir. But Isabel Eberhardt was European and traveled also and was also initiated uh, in a Sufi order and traveled alone at the turn of the uh, century, the 20th century, uh, across Morocco. 
So there's definitely some parallels there, except that she was a white woman traveling, uh, but she was still traveling as a dervish and dervish is dervish anywhere in the world. And so once uh, the character of Maya in my book is not a dervish yet, there's only some uh, very fresh understandings or, or fresh desire for to move in that direction. But Isabel Eberhardt was already a dervish traveling alone in Morocco, often by horse um, and things like that. So that's definitely um, another writer. But there are not many uh, in this uh, who are writing kind of in this tradition uh, from this perspective. So it's exciting. <laughs> it's very exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also want to ask you about your practice and how much of, you know, I mean, the story of in the protagonist of Maya, as you just have mentioned, she doesn't come to that state where that initiation into the path officially takes place. But I think as you're writing this after the fact, um, how much of kind of the practice um, and kind of the inward direction that you're going as a practitioner of the tradition of Sufism is also the navigating the actual act of writing itself. I mean, do you find that it was something that was at odds with each other? Or was it something that was kind of really woven in together and, and intimate and, and kind of conducive collectively? I think there's two aspects to that. Um, to that question, to if to to answer that question, one is the concept of I and I-ness within Tasawuf, which is always what we're trying to remove. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's very difficult to be an artist uh, or a writer and say I did this. <laughs> uh, so that aspect is difficult, not only putting your name on a book, but also being a character or, you know, including a character in the book who's a younger version of yourself. So the quality of Inus, uh, that was something that was a big struggle uh, for for me uh, writing this as a, as a student of Tasawuf. And it's like, oh, I'm doing this, but I'm trying to not be I. <laughs> I'm trying to be this one. Uh, so that was uh, one, uh, definitely one big aspect. Um, and I don't remember the other one that I wanted to mention. Oh, perhaps this is the most important one, <laughs> is Inus, how to deal with that when you put your name on something. And perhaps that's why I changed my name. Or not changed it, but uh, allowed it to be itself. So uh, um, a, a, a name was given uh, many years ago. Uh, and when you're given a name in the Sufi tradition, it's a name that both describes you and a name that um, uh, hopefully you can aspire to become. And it's never, it's not a name that I ever shared with anyone, but uh, uh, people in the Sufi and the, the Tasawuf communities always called me by that name. And it's something that was is very uh, precious uh, to me. And in the end, I thought, okay, well, it's been almost 20 years. Perhaps now we can share it with the world. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, having an, uh, an arts practice for 25 years as Tanya Evanson now the arts practice has fully incorporated um, aspects of Tasawuf and in particular the name Tawhida. And now the mm. name becomes Tawhida Tanya Evanson. So mm. most folks still don't know what to call me. So that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's good for the ego. <laughs> you don't know what to call me. Call me you. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. Especially I don't exist. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
it's it's interesting because we've been talking about so many esoteric aspects of the book. I'm almost going to shift direction um, and think about the literary landscape that you're writing in. I mean, as a practitioner, uh, you know, a literary artist, a spoken word poet um, who, you know, is in the Canadian context. Do you see this work as, you know, adding to the landscape of um, Canadian Black Muslim literary traditions or, uh, you know, um, literary traditions broadly, I, I will have to say, I don't think I've ever seen a book like this, you know, published in the Canadian context, you know, by a Canadian author, um, you know, speaking to themes of Sufism. So, um, you know, um, in such, such a profound way. So I wonder if, you know, you thought about that as an impact of this book as well. Perhaps the, the desire was to share the story as something huck, as something true, without necessarily uh, deciding where it should go, how it should be received, who should be receiving it, um, and how. Uh, It was more about letting it be itself. And if Mm -hmm. something is created, something artistic is created that is strong like a table, then it will have its own platform. And this one can be separate from it. It can live on its own and, uh, yeah. and uh, it can hold its own space. So honestly, I have no idea how it could be seen or even how it could be perhaps shared in academic uh, circles. Um, I'd like to think that uh, um, I'm a poet and it, it's taken maybe 15 years. It took 15 years to even say, begin saying that out loud which is very true for many poets. Um, yeah. So uh, there's always a poet at the table, even when the poet is writing prose. Uh, but as well as being a poet, I'm very much in the West African griot tradition. Uh, and so the griot is this wonderful, um, it's a French word, in fact, but it signifies the keepers of oral history, the the the, the musicians, the storyteller. Uh, it's uh, The griot is a, um, a, a dancer, the griot is a genealogist, the village librarian, a mediator, um, a ceremony participant. So the griot has 50 job titles or so. And so I've always felt very connected to that tradition as well as perhaps the, the tradition of the wandering dervish. So both of those elements are kind of how I, um, it, those two things coming together in the book is what I would see happening, is this tradition of the wandering dervish and the and the tradition of the West African griot who's telling the story and a story that has lessons in it. Um, and then I have a question also for you, which is, are there other Black Sufi writers in Canada? And can right. one even call oneself a Sufi? Like, right. how dare right. we? Yeah. You know? So uh, yeah. that's yeah. another thing too. Are there others? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. Do you know if there yeah. are others? I think you're the only one that I know of. <laughs> well, then I'm living up to my name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, no, I think just the way in which all of these things come together and are kind of centered in this practice of Sufism. And I think also in terms of it being a reflection of your own journey, I think it's just so fascinating. Um, and I think it's important um, in terms of, I don't, not just even the Canadian landscape, if you want to say that. And I think we're just saying Canadian because we're both Canadians talking about the book, right? But I imagine we could say this mm-hmm. about um, a lot of other landscapes as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think, it would, as you say, it would be fascinating to see um, what people get as they 
they pick up the book and experience it themselves. Um, mm-hmm. What is what is the dervishes the dervish experience in the Americas? You know, the dervish mm-hmm. experience of the of North America, and perhaps it's it's coming it's coming from that, especially because a lot of uh, what we receive from Tasawuf is translated. So if we read poetry, we're not reading it in the original uh, form, although we may have people around us who can open up uh, the traditional versions that, you know, the, the original translate, the original versions of these beautiful Sufi texts and poems. Mm-hmm. What we generally work from is a place of translation, like, you know, the essential Rumi as, as translated or transliterated or interpreted by Coleman Barks. Right. So um, this is all we can do other than somehow uh, tapping into something that's already in us. Uh, and I think that's just somehow what happened with me is just uh, having a realization that, huh, la, Allah, la, la, there is something from me and from my specific heritage uh, coming through the Caribbean and then from West Africa that is makes all of this logical, that makes a Sufi practice logical, not only um, uh, you know, from an intellectual perspective, but from a cultural perspective, from an emotional perspective, from a philosophical perspective, a psychological mm-hmm. perspective. So that's also kind of an interesting uh, notion. Yeah. Um, we've talked about the book so much. I wonder if you could treat us to reading a little passage for, for us. Yes, that would be lovely. I found a short passage here. Um, this is this is from a chapter called The Gatekeeper. And The Gatekeeper uh, is um, another way of describing um, Imam Ali. And so the character in this chapter, of course, uh, um, is uh, around uh, Maya meeting Ali in the Sahara Desert. So in this portion, uh, Maya has just returned from exploring the one of the biggest sand dunes in the Moroccan Sahara, which is Erg Chebi. So she's just returned. The sun rose and pushed me and my mild melanin out the way. Back in the room, I removed my underwear and a cup of Sahara fell to the ground from between my legs. The absolute is always with you. When I descended for breakfast, I saw Ali there with his companions. Overwhelmed by his presence, I knew I had to leave. They told me that public transport no longer ran from Merzuga. Ali was the only driver available to take me to the next town for a price. The gatekeeper had me with the strength of a rock. I left at noon for Erfoud. The French couple joined the ride. Ali drove us again in silence. Out the window, the decaying corpse of a dromedary came into view by the side of the stark road. I threw it a prayer. The prayer was returned. In Erfud, we each paid our portion. Suddenly, Ali said that 30 dirham was missing. As we argued, a crowd of taxi drivers congregated around us. It was a campaign against financial corruption and unfair tourist privileges, a disparity cry, a self-accounting. C'est beaucoup d'argent pour un Marocain, mais pas pour un touriste. It's a lot of money for a Moroccan, but not for a tourist. We surrendered. An hour later, I was sitting at the back of a bus headed to Er Rashidia, dusty, barefoot, and bleeding in Western clothes. That night, I heard Sufis chanting a zikir outside the hotel window as I smoked 
Marlboro after Marlboro after Marlboro sitting on the edge of the windowsill alone in the room. La ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah. Someone knocked at the door, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah. When I answered, there was no one there. I returned to the window. But the zikr had ceased. That was beautiful. Thank you so <laughs> now much. Now we're both slightly, in, now I feel intoxicated. Thank you. Yeah. It's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that with us thank you very much for for requesting it Uh, i never know um what portion to read so i often just open it to any page and see what happens because that's generally how i read rumi's work and and so i I always hope that perhaps this work could be uh, read in the same way because the vignette, the vignettes are so, the chapters are so short that you could open a page and you could receive something and then close it and put it away. So right. that was also um, right. one of my, one of my hopes. Oh, I think it was the perfect, perfect one to read for us and for the audience. I'm, I'm sure everybody will, will love it. Um, right. I mean, we're, I don't, I don't want to keep you much longer. I'm mindful of your time, um, but I wonder if you have any advice. Um, most of our listeners are, you know, educators or professors, and I wonder if you have any suggestion as you yourself are an educator in terms of how somebody might want to um, use this book in a classroom or in, in any other way. Um, um, it's a very good question, uh, and I didn't realize it fully, in fact, until uh, Dimitri Nasrallah, who is my editor that I worked with at uh, Vehicle Press, and and asked me quite wonderful questions to uh, allow this book to be written. And he said uh, the reason that he wanted to work with me on this book was that he thought he felt that it was an old book. Um, and in the end, it's, it's the hero's journey. Uh, so the hero who goes on, um, who goes on a, a pilgrimage and wanders and has all these encounters and in the end is transformed. So it is that same story, except that the hero is not a white male. The hero is a black woman, and not only black women, a biracial black woman, so that there are elements of English and French um, mixed in, even with Arabic and Spanish. So language is also another aspect, because this is a biracial black woman from Georgia, Montreal, Canada. So there's that aspect as well. And it's in the tradition of travel writing, you know, the walkabout, um, and uh, has aspects of, of philosophy and poetry. Um, and so it's really that. It's a variation of the hero's journey. It's a, it's a new iteration, the hero's journey through a new lens and the lens of a, a biracial Black woman. Um, as we conclude, um, I know this, is, uh, this book just came out and we're also in a pandemic. And um, so I think... I'm mindful of all that as I ask you, are there things that you're hoping or you were working on before things happened or things that you're hoping to get back to or new projects underway for you? I'm sure our listeners would Um, like to know. Well, thank you for that question. There's always projects on the go. uh, And it was was wonderful even that this book, I mean, I got a book deal in a pandemic. That's just, I think that's pretty fierce. I don't know how it happened, but 
Alhamdulillah, <laughs> give thanks for that. So as I received, um, as I got this book deal in April 2020, I also received a grant from the Canada Council from, for the Arts to start a project at the same time. So I postponed it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a spoken word project. And I got a grant, in fact, to live for a year. So, you know, as all my performances, uh, performance events dried up, somehow I then I had money in the bank to not only work on the Book of Wings, right. uh, but once Book of Wings was finished, then I started working on the spoken word project. And it will be um, a, uh, it's about the Anthropocene or uh, the human impact on the climate that we are currently living in right now. And it's looking at the Anthropocene from different levels mm -hmm. of life, from the molecular to the planetary and how each level um, looks at uh, what is happening to this beloved planet of which we only have one. So I'm hoping to make um, a concert film with music that's uh, done here in, in Georgiaga, Montreal with local musicians and local filmmakers and create kind of a live concert, possibly with no audience. <laughs> and so to create a film that would incorporate mm. spoken word, uh, music in a jazz tradition and also in an Eastern tradition, because I often bring both into that work, as well as um, um, odd, uh, video mapping, um, audio tracking, things like that. So to bring in some uh, digital aspects to a live performance that would end up being um, uh, like a concert film. So that's the main project I'm working on now. And then a book of short stories after this will be uh, based on dreams that I've been documenting since 1994. So two big projects right now. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, very yeah. big projects. <laughs> both sound so excited, exciting. So I'm looking forward to them when they come out. And I also look forward to seeing you, um, you know, um, whirl as you, as you do um, in many spaces. And so I kind of miss all of that, um, the aspect of experiencing that tradition. So hopefully post-pandemic we'll have an encounter. Inshallah. So, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. And sharing your time with us. And be oh, this is such a beautiful conversation and I'm really grateful. Okay. So am I. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. And that was my conversation with Tauhida Tanya Evanson about her debut novel, Book of Wings, published by Vehicle Press. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope to have you join us again next time. Until then, take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.